Welcome to the Dissolve Podcast, episode 33, the Whipped Nuts edition. I'm Scott Tobias, editor of the Dissolve. On today's episode, the release of Furious 7, the latest in the wildly popular franchise, has us thinking about other long-running series and how they're able to last through five, six, or even a couple dozen iterations. And a documentary about beloved character actor Dick Miller inspires a segment on our favorite quote-unquote that guy actors and actresses. The game this week is Vinspiration, in which I ask contestants to differentiate between Vin Diesel quotes from movies, from real life, and from my imagination. We wrap it up, as always, with our quickfire recommendation segment, 30 Seconds to Sell. Stay tuned, Dissolvers. Today sees the release of Furious 7, the latest in a franchise that started 14 years ago, but keeps getting bigger with each successive entry. As it's added more characters, mythology, and scale, the series has not only retained its core audience, but expanded it substantially. From James Bond to Mission Impossible to Friday the 13th, we wanted to look at other franchises that have lasted over four sequels and sometimes a few decades. What's the secret? How do you serve fans without repeating yourself? And how do you appeal to different generations of moviegoers who might want different experiences? Joining me are... Nathan Rabin. And... Tasha Robinson. Nathan, let's start with you. Um, the Fast and the Furious. Let's get, you know, since the Furious 7 is coming out, let's begin with that. Uh, how, how did that franchise begin and how has it been able to, to, to grow so successfully? Oh, sure. Well, I think it began on a really modest kind of scale. It was basically sort of a, a hyped up, amped up uh, studio version of kind of a B movie, the sort of thing, you know, that Roger Corman might have done in the late 60s or mm-hmm. early 70s. Uh, it was very self-contained. You know, you kind of had these... Uh, clashing figures of Vin Diesel and Paul Walker. You write a cop and, in a row. Right, 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 right. And then, you know, Vin Diesel kind of um, <laughs> got a little full of himself uh, and abandoned his franchises for a little while there. Uh, and I haven't seen uh, Tokyo Drift, I think in part because I think a lot of people shared the idea that if, you know, the main star isn't in the movie, it's a little less uh, essential. It's a little less authentic. Yeah, neither but, of them, right? Right, right, right. But what they did was they kept adding new characters. But what they did was it felt organic. They were adding characters and actors that people wanted uh, included in the, you know, the Jason Statham, Kurt Russell, uh, The Rock. I mean, these are all fan favorites, ludicrous. Uh, like, these are all people who, that you know, you, people are excited to see you show up. And I was uh, talking to some uh, Uber driver yesterday about... Uh, <laughs> Speaking of the Fast and the Furious. Not, 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 to get too, uh, not to get too glamorous or anything, but I was comparing uh, this to a Lethal Weapon series where they just kept people adding people randomly just because you know why not have Chris Rock and Jet Li in this movie nobody wants to see you know uh, Denny Glover say he's getting too old for this crap anymore so I think that's part of it is making it uh, bigger and, and more substantial but still organic and still kind of holding on to the core of what the franchise has been see I'm now imagining this this uh, this Uber Lyft kind of uh, <laughs> driving series uh, um, you know the one thing here's my theory about about Fast, the Fast and the Furious series and see, see what you think of it. Um, the thing I did not like about the first Fast and the Furious and the one thing that had, that had I had the biggest trouble with was, was the fact that it departed from gearhead movies in the past and its incorporation of CGI. Right, you know, because right, I think right. the, the thing that was always great about about car movies is that is that you just had these big cars with whatever they're re- really souped up and when they crashed i mean these, these were actual car cars crashing they're practical stunts etc and when you got rid of that it kind of it lost that 
physicality. And so, but what I think what the series has done is acknowledge the fact that, okay, this is just a, an insane video game. So let's just go ahead and take that element and just push it to absurd extremes. Right. I mean, because the last, and, and you can see that sort of borne out in the last, in the second half of this franchise where, where, where the budgets have grown, where things have gotten more, crazier, more ridiculous, and the series is, more, is pop, more popular than it's ever been. And I feel that that to me is the theory of Fast and Furious. Yeah, at some point, these uh, cars are going to go into outer space. Hmm. Right. Uh, people will be like, wow, they really jumped the shark during the Moonraker Literally uh, jumping uh, installment. The sh- jumping the, the space shark. Jumping the space shark and the Moonraker installment of the uh, Fast and the Furious. I feel like somebody just pitched that. But, you know, Tasha, let's... Uh, you know, the sequels, they always run the risk of repeating themselves or seeming like rehashes, uh, but they also have to pay off fan expectations. So how have successful long-running franchises threaded that needle, I guess, between delivering the goods and then keep and also keeping things reasonably fresh? Well, I mean, I think you said it yourself when you, when you talk about bringing CGI into the Fast and Furious movies. Movie technology has changed so rapidly and so much, even over the past couple of decades. If you look at a lot of these, like, really long-running franchises, a lot of them are are based in like gearhead ideas on some level. I mean, the James Bond series has changed a lot back and forth from uh, very serious to very comedic, from like one-liner based to uh, gritty to from completely over-the-top scenarios to very serious scenarios. But it's always been kind of rooted in fast cars and weird little gadgets and, you know, what what new thing is James Bond going to be able to blow up next? There's always been sort of that gearhead element. Even if you look at something as like as lo-fi as like the Friday the 13th, movies, there's still an underpinning there of special effects have changed. Yeah, Jason's just going to stab a bunch of people. You know, he always stabs a bunch of people, but if, how is how is he going to do it this time? The effects are going to change. It's going to be more realistic, more gory, more creative. All of these, these like the really long-running franchises, seem to have some element of, well, technology has changed, so we want to come back and see what it looks like now. We want to see what, what Freddy can do in the Friday the 13th movies now that he's got CGI. We want to keep coming back and seeing how Peter Jackson's going to up his game for the latest Hobbit movie now that he needs even more CGI because he's got a giant dragon in the mix. There's always that element. I mean, you talk about uh, how do you serve fans without repeating yourself. A lot of times with these franchises, you serve fans by repeating yourself because people come back to see the elements that they love. The way that you get around it is by upping the ante and more and more upping the ante means in terms of what film can accomplish and what you can bring to the screen that you couldn't literally couldn't bring to the screen even five or 10 years ago. Yeah, I mean, but I think it's also kind of a chameleonic effect too. I mean, the Bond franchise is a great example of that, of just like... uh, the people behind the series, whether they're conscious of it or not, are are reflecting uh, the attitudes of the time, the trends of the time. You know, like you know, if you look at the James, the you know the the James Bond that's being played by Daniel Craig, you know, there's kind of a a grit and an edge to and a darkness there that's not present. Say. You know, with Roger Moore. There's a a delightful chap. Well, there's a lack of feeling in the most recent ones, the the Daniel Craig ones. And Mm. I think that kind of reflects where we are in terms of masculinity. If you you just watch James Bond over the years, you get very different attitudes towards what masculinity is.
masculinity means. And with Sean Connery, it may be a more sort of playful, like being on top of things and being sexy in a very come hither sort of way. With Daniel Craig, sexy means never having an emotion, never having any sort of feeling whatsoever for women, except this one woman who maybe made him shed a single manly tear, which was the only tear that he had within his body ever. And then he was done. You know, this is... This is a man that can take being whipped in the testicles, which can you can you imagine Robert Roger Moore taking that without yeah. at least a wisecrack? <laughs> no, I guess I, I, I guess a lot of people were, were, were fantasizing about Roger Moore getting it in the testicles. Aww. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Come on. Then we all showed up to the last 10 Bond movies hoping that CGI would let us see Roger Moore get whipped in the testicles. <laughs> Roger Moore would just show up and get kicked in the nuts. <laughs> it's the wonder of CGI. They're making, I they're making a real statement. They're like, <laughs> but he was game enough to show up solely for his cameo. Oh, come on. Well, how about, how about, I was hoping that they would go full. We'll let Roger Moore off the hook. No, I think Richard, Roger Moore, I think, would be more comfortable getting kicked in the nuts during his one minute game. I was hoping we were going <laughs> to go full Fast James and Furious and that Vin Diesel was going to show up <laughs> and get whipped in the nuts in the latest James Bond film. That's what I showed up for. I think for. a bit of a crossover and everybody from the Fast and the Furious movie is going to kick Roger Moore in the nuts. <laughs> I think the latest Bond movie should just be called Whipped in the Nuts, the James Bond story. <laughs> uh, see, this is this is what people show up to uh, to new franchises installments yeah. for. Is they, they don't know what they're going to get. They hope they're going to get everything they, they wish. So for. now I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and, and play the host here. Things, I'm going to reel it. I'm going to reel it back in All a right. little bit. Uh, and because I want to talk about you know a counter another way of doing thing, another model, which is the Mission Impossible model. Uh, hmm. uh, um, of of trying to you know how how to keep the franchise fresh. The answer in that case, and this is true, I guess, of the Alien films as well. Right. Let's just do have a different person doing it every time. Let's mm-hmm. we, you know. Right. Um, so so, um, but there's a thing where you know some elements you need some continuity. Other places you depart. Where where do you, where do you what do you do in those instances? You know, uh, where do you stay consistent with the series, and where do you where do you depart? Well, it depends on what defines the the series. Well, wow, I can't believe we came down from from giggle fit that quickly. Because <laughs> in the Mission Impossible movies, <laughs> in the Mission Impossible movies, it seems to me like what what defines those movies is is the missions, the the heist mentality, the the quick moving reaction to changing circumstances. And as long as you have that in there, as long as well, you know, that and Ethan Hunt, who also shed one manly tear once in his life and then was done. Uh, as long as you have that, like as long as the heist is good, it, it kind of doesn't matter. Like the rest of it is just filling. It doesn't really matter who else is on the mission or even necessarily what the mission is for. What what matters is that it moves in an exciting and thrilling kind of way. So, you know, as long as you've got somebody that, that can direct action well, it seems to me like that in and, in and of itself is the core of those films. Well, I think it uh, speaks to uh, Tom Cruise that he chooses uh, collaborators who are have very distinct, very strong personalities. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at the directors of the Mission Impossible series, you get Brian De Palma, yeah. uh, who's working in a very commercial vein in the first one, but also making it very much really Brian good. De Palma yeah. movie. John Woo kind of doing a bad John Woo self-parody in the second one. J.J. Uh, Abrams, you know, uh, bring in, bring in the, uh, the sensitivity, the emotion, the Phil Zimmer Hoffman to the third one. Uh, Brad Bird, who I guess had never really directed an action movie. No, uh, but he's well. The, the Incredibles. Oh, yeah, he had actually. But just, I mean, yeah, no, 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 live, live action. action, action yeah. But yeah, obviously, like one of the 
you know, most brilliant people in Hollywood. And then, you know, this says the Christian McQuarrie uh, doesn't have quite the personality that everybody else does. But, you know, he chooses interesting people who each leave their own stamp on the series. Although I really wonder how many people went to see any of those movies because of the director. Probably probably everybody who's listening to this podcast, but outside that like relatively small circle, like I just, I find it uh, difficult to imagine like, you know, uh, Joe and Jane Smith, like looking at the, what's playing at the multiplex. Oh, the latest movie directed by Brad Bird, the, uh, (laughs) the animator that did the the family dog and the iron giant. Let's absolutely go see the fourth installment in a franchise where a bunch of stuff was consulting on the Simpsons in the early (laughs) nineties. But I I don't think it's any, I don't think any people show up really generally to see a director at work. I think that the director just does what the director does and that, and it delivers a film that hopefully they're going to like. Uh, And I think think the last few, those last few uh, Mission Impossibles have been, you know, uh, the the Brad Bird and the J.J. Abrams were kind of stabilizing films in a way because John Woo definitely John Wooed up uh, (laughs) the the second one. And and, uh, I think uh, Abrams and, and, and Bird, uh, we're just we're a little bit more meat and potatoes, though they're both quite good, quite quite good filmmakers, and I assume Macquarie would do well too. But I think Nathan kind of hit on something I, I had wanted to say about about Mission Impossible as a series as being like a, a just a, a prime example of how well uh, Tom Cruise manages his career of just of him always yeah, choosing um, you know directors of a very high quality to work with, and that's kind of what's kept him. Uh, going, you know, above, above a lot of things that are holding him back uh, in his in his personal, you know, being a giant weirdo for one. His personality, uh, yeah. So uh, um, being a little bit creepy. Um, but, we probably uh, shouldn't underestimate the ability of a, a high powered star, or even just a really familiar face like uh, uh, Robert England to doing Freddy Krueger as uh, an mm. like as anchoring a long running series and and bringing people back it's just sort of that ability to to say you know there there's this person we liked in in that last film i think i think uh you know my theoretical joe and jane six pack who don't know who brad bird is most definitely do know who tom cruise is and know he was in the last you know however many of those uh, films that they saw and may come back you know and not only come back to see him but kind of as we talked in a, about in a previous podcast take the fact that he's still there as an indicator of the film's quality and and worthiness to be part of the, the franchise series might be actually worth talking a little bit about um uh, about horror franchises as you said as you say i mean Fred, freddy krueger and then also M- michael myers and their ability to survive the scream series. a lot of different yeah scream, right was, you know these kind of iconic horror uh, uh characters who were able to kind of stick around sequel after sequel and how those kind of go uh, I mean, the interesting story to the most interesting thing to me about Halloween as a franchise is is you know the weird story behind Halloween three, which mm-hmm. is that yeah. the, the director said, well, um, you this know, is going to be an would, anthology. Yeah, this will be just an anthology. Every Halloween, we'll make a movie, and it's going to be something different and weird under the theme of Halloween, despite having two movies in the can uh, around Michael Myers, and so that that was kind of a, a lesson, I guess, in in needing at least that continuity in order to kind of move the series forward. But 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 there, you, you don't really need to add much in terms of mythology. I mean, you know, it's just another pack of uh, killable teenagers, right? And then and uh, the and the star is enough to kind of keep keep the thing going, even when the 
you know, inspiration sort of dies. Although, but at the same when time, when Rob Zombie rebooted yeah. that series, it kind of felt like that was as much about hey, it's Rob Zombie rebooting oh, yeah. that series as it was about uh, an older Michael Myers film. I mean, it was kind of you know, it was kind of a, a marriage of equals, um, both the franchise and and the director there. And I, I feel like they both kind of brought something to the formula of what's going to bring people back into theaters. Yeah, I can totally agree with that. And one kind of interesting uh, case, kind of. Uh, skirts the sci-fi horror is the uh, Alien series where you have you know some very strong directors like Ridley Scott like James Cameron like David Fincher but you also have you know uh, the kind of secret auteur of that franchise which is Walter Hill mm-hmm. who uh, co-writes and produces uh, almost all of all of the projects yeah um, you know and then so God, now Neil Blomkopf uh, is going to have mm-hmm. his Chappie uh, director Chappie. himself uh, is going to have, you know, Chappie versus Alien, I guess people yeah. are very yeah. excited. Yeah. Chappie actually gets an infected by an alien. Chappie's replacing uh, Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> That's great. The weird thing people is, can't get enough of that Chappie. The fifth movie, it has this weird scene where Chappie gets inside that big metal, so it's like a robot yeah. inside of another kind of a robotic structure. Wow. It's going to so be exciting. pretty great. Yeah, so, but yeah, so that's an example of, uh, of you know, kind of keep it fresh by always investing this new blood into it. Mm. So, uh, so how do we keep this podcast franchise fresh? <laughs> we get with Tom three, Cruise. We're 33 episodes in. I have been pushing from day one to get Tom Cruise as a third co-host. Just I think more people in. getting kicked in the nuts. <laughs> okay. I think that's kind of the... Uh, that's, that's Can we get of, Tom well, Cruise well, to come in money. here and let's, get whipped I think, in the nuts? I think, I think, uh, we'll, that's we'll, our money shot in the nuts. We'll float... We'll, 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 that theory will start with you, Nathan, on that. Okay, Kickstarter, Roger Moore, we will pay you... Five thousand dollars to get kicked in the nuts for our podcast. As yes. long as somebody's taking it in the nuts, we're gold. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, Tasha and Nathan, this this segment did not go exactly where I planned, but I think that's where we want our franchises to go anyway. So uh, thanks very much. Thank you. You're more than welcome. The documentary That Guy Dick Miller is opening today in limited release. Movie buffs know Dick Miller as a character actor who's been appearing in movies since the 1950s, and he's particularly well known for livening up Roger Corman productions and appearing in virtually every Joe Dante movie. As the title suggests, Miller is the ultimate quote-unquote that guy actor, someone viewers may recognize instantly from bit parts in a million other films, but can't necessarily put a face to a name. We all have our favorite that guy actors and actresses who typically pop up six or eight names deep in the credits, so we thought we'd shine the spotlight on a few of them here. Joining me are... Keith Phipps. Nathan Raymond. Rachel Handler. Rachel, let's start with you. Uh, first off, what, what makes a good that guy actor? You know, It seems like the trick is to stand out without standing out so much that you take attention away from the leads. See, I disagree with that. I, I, I think it, it might be better to stand out so much that you do take attention away for a moment. I think that's that's what makes you that guy. I, otherwise, you're not really memorable. I think um, you have to be recognizable, but you can. The, the thing is, you should never remember their name. Like you have to spend at least five minutes going <laughs> totally distracted, thinking, "Who is that guy? Why do I know him?" And then just annoying the hell out of whoever you're watching the movie with, and just being like, "What is that person from?" And then you kind of look at IMDb and go, "Oh yeah, that guy." You have to go through that whole process every time for this person, um, and then you have to forget them entirely so that the next time you can do it again. Uh, so I think they have to steal at least one scene per movie and improve upon it. And you remember the scene or you remember the line, but you don't remember the name. You cannot hey, remember the name. Maybe that's why everybody whips out their phones uh, during, <laughs> during, during movies. Like that, all the theater, the theater suddenly illuminates with everyone saying, right. I know that person. <laughs> right. Where's that person from? Uh, what do you all think about, about the that guy quality? Well, I, I think 
Dick Miller is a really good example, actually, because there's no mistaking him for anyone else, but it's, you know, except for, uh, I think maybe more so now than before, but he's not necessarily a name everyone knows, but I mean, you know, that face, that voice, um, and yet he's almost always in the background, except for the Roger Corman films he was a lead in, uh, Bucket of Blood and, and uh, Little Shop of Horrors. Um, he's just usually just part of a larger ensemble, but uh, he brings, I think the thing is to bring something that, that you can't really get from anyone else, that, that's like, you know, you want a Dick Miller type, or, you know, there's no such thing as a Dick Miller type, there's only one Dick Miller and that's uh and that's i think that's what makes a good that guy i uh, probably fall on uh, rachel's side there where i think yeah that guy a lot of times it helps if they stand out if they consistently transcend uh the material that they have um and one of the things that kind of makes a that guy that guy for me uh, is improvisational ability because if you are that guy and you can improvise really really well it doesn't matter how terrible the movie that you're in you can elevate it through your work so uh i guess my first that guy would be uh, larry miller uh, who oh, has right. uh, who has appeared in pretty much all he was actually a finalist for the role of george uh, costanza on uh seinfeld huh. apparently seinfeld's best friend in real life uh, you can totally see him in that role but he's so brilliant playing these kind of fussy uh you know sort of uh ridiculous little man probably most uh, notably in uh, pretty woman yeah where he is the gentleman who uh sells stuff to uh julia roberts on rodeo drive and it's one of those guys where it's like he probably doesn't even have character doesn't even have a name he's probably just you know rodeo drive salesman but you know in those two minutes he makes you remember him he has almost kind of that distracted uh, Jeff Goldblum quality too. It's like maybe maybe a part that's too small for Jeff Goldblum to play. Throw to throw to Larry Miller. No, totally. And Jeff Goldblum also is one of those guys who is like big big movie star for the '80s. Also, is kind of that guy. You know, I think about a movie like Next Stop Greenwich Village, where he has one scene, but you friggin' remember him forever because he's so forceful and he's so funny and he's so singular and he's so unforgettable in his 67 seconds of screen time. I think it's an example of, of a character actor who kind of graduates from that guy to, to a slightly more elevated status. I mean, I think the classic example of that to me is William H. Macy, who was you know, oh, yeah, that yeah, guy yeah, in the background with tons of stuff. And then Fargo happened. It's not like a lead role or anything, but suddenly, you know, let's get more of that William H. Macy into things. And now, you know, he's everywhere and has been ever since. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I think... I think Goldblum is probably someone who uh, slightly, you know, a few, a few different choices. He probably would have been, uh, a, a you know, relegated to a character actor. Well, relegated is not the right word. He probably would have distinguished himself as a character actor rather than, than a leading man. Well, I can suggest a couple of more criteria now that I'm thinking about it. One, one is that I think it's always nice when they, they can do both comedy and drama, have no problem sort of crossing over into both territories. And two, uh, I think they have to show up at law and or, in Law and Order at some point. <laughs> I, think that's another, I think that's for the modern character actor. I think that's something uh, you have to do. My 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 feeling is just it seems like you all, if you live in New York. Uh, you almost have to be actively trying, and you're an actor. You have to actively be trying not to appear in Law and Order. You know? right. it, it just kind of, <laughs> yeah. it just kind of happens. Just bring you in there, uh, Rachel. Uh, do, you, do you have a favorite? Yeah, it, let's talk. Let's talk favorite. Uh, All right, characters. I have a couple. Um, yeah. One of them is Brendan Gleeson. Um, I, oh, the first, great. I was every time I see him, I'm like, what do I know him from? And it's, I mean, obviously he's Mad Eye Moody in Harry Potter, which I think was the one that stands out for me, even though I don't even particularly like those movies. He's the dad in 28 Days Later, which is that second thing I always remember. Okay. And he's the general in Edge of Tomorrow. And yeah. I think... And, and in the general. And in the general. <laughs> <laughs> he really confused me there. Yeah. And he's always just kind of this gruff, 
you know, dude who seems angry but has a soft heart. And I don't know. I, I just love him for some reason. He sticks. He always stands out to me. And I can never remember where I know him from. And he, and he also, he's always, when he does get the opportunity to do uh, a lead role, he's always fantastic. And like in Bruges and the, uh, that was the one from last year when he was, uh, Calvary, yeah. yeah, he's, yeah sometimes you'll kind of see, uh, sometimes you'll see sort of these, that guys start off as sort of these stealing character actors and then kind of evolve into like these larger sort of meatier uh, lead roles. One way in which I kind of went the opposite way would be with uh, one of my favorite that guys, uh, Philip Baker Hall. Yeah. Who kind of made his yeah. reputation starring as uh, Richard Nixon in Secret Honor, which is this, this ferocious, galvanizing, like unforgettable performance. And then he kind of disappeared for a little bit. And now he's in ever. I mean, that one is like probably like 93 years old and makes 17 movies a year and he's always good and you're always like oh great this movie might suck but at least philip uh baker hall is going to be really interesting yeah i I think that's three and a half minutes uh seinfeld connection too because he was the librarian in there who goes after uh he's actually in uh, and one of the reasons why all good things should have been so much better than it actually was is he actually played uh the last guy that robert durst killed and i'm like that is perfect casting but you know that not even that guys can save some movies yes. right I think yeah I think you touch on something there that 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 a good character actor can, can instill a sense of confidence when when he or she shows up it's like oh this movie might not be bad but hey there's Yafat Koto you know uh, right. it's gonna he'll, he'll be he'll be good you know um, my current like the one the one that kind of popped to the top of my list recently is is someone and given them much consideration before before is, is Leland Orser uh, who is yeah. one of the co-leads in, in, a, in a film called Faults a nice a nice little thriller right. that we reviewed a while back and like you may know him he may know me from such movies as uh, such parts as Crazed Man in Massage Parlor from Seven <laughs> and uh, just he's just put in tons of stuff he's probably his highest profile stuff lately has been uh, one of uh, Liam Neeson's uh, fellow spy buddies in the Taken films but uh, yeah he's just so fantastic and false it reminded me actually to circle back to uh, William H. Macy in Fargo where here is someone getting a part you know sort of the best part of their career and, and not wasting a second of it so I would recommend uh, keeping an eye on him and, and seeing that movie yeah and Richard Jenkins as well as had oh, that Jenkins. sort of thing he kind of got to come up with through, and, and J.K. Simmons yeah well, he, he was that guy forever and this year he you know won the Academy Award for being that guy in the most uh, concentrated form imaginable but we're, over, we're overlooking and so I, we're naming a lot of men here yes, I was just gonna say we need some that girls yeah I was about to I was about to segue into that so uh, uh, so yeah let's talk a little bit about that I mean these are all that guys quite literally <laughs> what about what about uh what about women what about uh um that that guy that guys who are not guys what the fuck i don't even know what what that, that gal. gal what about that gals do you have any that gals i have Rachel? one um well so i know who she is because this is like a little bit of a humble brag mode she went to my high school but um <laughs> she to me i think she's sort of a consummate that gal Anne right hathaway? now yeah Anne hathaway um rachel brosnahan i don't know if you guys watch house of cards but she plays rachel in house of cards oh. um she was she was a patty and olive kitteridge the woman who almost drowns okay um she's had a lot of these small but i think really substantial roles she was on orders of new black she was in Beautiful Creatures, which you might remember as the Emmy Rossum terrible movie about witches. I remember that that someone else was assigned (laughs) that. Um, She was in The Unborn, which is a horror film a couple years ago. I saw Uh, that one. And she's sort of just on the rise, I think, but she's always, she always brings a lot of 
I don't know. I think she's very talented and I, not a lot of people probably know who she is, but she's always the person that, that you would see in a movie and be like, I know her from that tiny role in Orange is the New Black or something like that, but she's great. And I we played um, Slutty Secretaries together in a high school play once. <laughs> wow. What kind, of, what kind of high school is this? A very, very liberal one. <laughs> I guess so. Oh, my God. And I'm, uh, I'm very fond of this actress, uh, Meryl Streep. Uh, wow. Not people know about. Or, uh, you know, actually have a, a um, column that I write for the newsreel uh, kind of about people like this called staunch characters Mm -hmm. and one of the people that i highlighted for it was um hand out uh from compliance oh right an amazing amazing performance and it's so like transformative that like you you don't recognize her if you see another film um i also singled out kathy bates who kind of started with the you know the role of the career uh and every time you see kathy bates name uh, in in a movie you're like at least that part is going to be good taken care of yeah definitely Uh, that's, that's, uh, what about you, Keith? Do you have any? Oh, uh, yeah. So, I mean, in terms of like younger people, um, I've, I really like this actress named Julia Garner, who's currently on the Americans. I, I, she first came to my attention in a not very good indie film called Electric Children. Uh, but she's popped up in things like, like Brooks to Being a Wallflower, Not Fade Away. Uh, and I think she's just maybe has a little bit of an, enough of an off quality that she'll probably not necessarily be a lead uh, um, in anything, but she's just sort of this great presence and I, and I, as someone I, I keep an eye on, but um, her being on the Americans now reminds me of course is, is sort of, you know, is um, we can't really not talk about Margot, Margot Martindale in this, who's sort of uh, become the preeminent uh, uh, character actress in some ways, almost like almost uh, in that William H. Macy place where it's a little bit, she's a little bit too big too to big even star. talk about. But, but it wasn't that, I think it was uh, justified that kind of brought her into the light as being being somebody oh uh, not 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 just a, that gal but like oh Margot Martinelle is amazing and right and uh, she keeps following through on that um, uh, even though I'm not officially participating in the segment I'm just yeah. leading things along I feel like I feel like we'd be remiss if we did not mention Amy Ryan right oh for sure oh, mm-hmm. what about yeah, Amy Ryan Melanie uh, uh, Linsky so somebody else oh my god I she's great enjoy, too uh, whenever she's in yeah. motion pictures Anna Kendrick kind of becoming too big of a star she's too big of a star yeah. Yeah. but Linsky's worth talking but, about because yeah. she's She's kind of because uh, you know the, she started off. She and uh, Kate Winslet were in Heavenly Creatures together, and the, the paths of their career diverged. You know, I mean, Kate Winslet became this gigantic Oscar-winning megastar. Megastar, but Melanie Linsky has stayed in the picture and is uh, again, yeah, the perfect example of an actress who who uh, comes in and does really interesting work every single time out um, and uh, has put together a, a career that may not be as high profile as Kate Winslet's, but I think it's just as interesting. Yeah, and, and, and she's all over the place from like independent films to Two and a Half Men. What might be one of the pleasures of being a character actor is that, that you you know you have such a, a wide range of experiences. And, you know, you can you do a sitcom on Monday and, and uh, an independent film on Tuesday and or maybe not quite that back to back, but but you have a, you know, you're all over the place and get to do a, a lot of different things. But I guess you have to be i guess kind of we have to be versatile to do that which is kind of what we're talking about as well yeah yeah speaking of uh sort of that guys who have appeared on two and a half men uh i would throw pat oswald into the mix where he apparently had a pretty substantial supporting role on two and a half men uh, i would not know one of, one of those actors who well he just i did random roles with him and he's like yeah it literally films two blocks away from where i live oh, and the yeah. and the money was nice so i don't think that's like the yeah. most passionate project but i mean you talk about a like, young adult you talk about just anything that he shows up in an uh, support even you know the life of walter mitty just a very very pretty very empty film but when he shows up it gets a whole lot better 
Yeah, I mean, I can, and I like that quality too. I think they're always the most interesting people to talk to because they've had such a weird range of experiences and they've been, you know, on the sidelines, which is almost a more interesting perspective. Uh, and and, and no one's really going to hold it against them if they if they kind of agree to be in a piece of crap. I mean, because that's their job. They're they're working actors, and so they can kind of move around and do a lot of different things. Um, yeah, if, if a movie if, if a movie's bad and Bruce Campbell's in it, it's usually not Bruce Campbell's. <laughs> no, no one's going to hold it against him. And same with uh, Terry Crews. Like, if a movie is a, is a piece of crap, it's not because he gave a bad performance. No, no. Uh, well, I'm, I'm sure we'll be seeing a lot more of all of these uh, fine actors and actresses in the next thing that we see. And then we'll be saying, who's that person? I don't know. I don't know who that person is. But we, we, all, we all know. But other people are going to say who that, who that person is. And they're going to look up in their phones and that sort of thing. Anyway, uh, Keith, Nathan, uh, Rachel, thank you. In the classic action hero mold, Vin Diesel is a man of few words. But the words he does say, on screen and off, have a philosophical bent to them. Today's game is called Vinspiration. And the rules are simple. I give each of you a quote. You tell me whether it was said by the real Vin Diesel, a character played by Vin Diesel, or something I just made up. <laughs> uh, joining me are, uh, again, uh, Keith Phipps. Hello. Nathan Rabin. Nathan Rabin. Rachel Handler. Um, so, so if I were to say... I am Groot. You would say, <laughs> you would say, uh, the character of Groot from yes. uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. You don't even have to say that. You just say character. Okay, you don't even have to say that. You don't even tell me. You don't even be specific about it. So, Vin the man, Vin the character, something I made up. Are most of these going to be from uh, Find Me Guilty? <laughs> they might be. All right. Who knows? Who knows? All right. We met Rachel. Diesel let together. us start with you. Okay. All right. Okay. You break her heart. I'll break your neck. Character. Character correct. Yes, the Fast and the Furious. Rachel's on the board. Uh, Nathan, you're next. Woohoo. It's insecurity that's always chasing you and standing in the way of your dreams. I'm guessing the person himself. The person himself. Ah, that's like a Facebook post. <laughs> I mean, I'm like looking as thoughtfully as out a as window as like or something. A, I think you're, you're pretty well attuned to his Facebook Yeah, I think page. there should you be just, I think you should do an entire line of successory posters. You've had a, just inspirational things with uh, Vin Diesel looking inspirational. Keith, this, this to you. You've got the best crew in the world standing right in front of you. Give them a reason to stay. That sounds like a character. That's right. Fast and Furious 6. So everybody got the first round right. But I have a feeling that subsequent <laughs> rounds... Are going to be a little less uh, easy. I was, I, I, I think, I, I was stumping Genevieve pretty well, sampling these questions. So maybe, maybe she's just not that great at this game. Rachel, to you, it's like you have a child, and you think everything I've done up until this point is insignificant in comparison to being a father. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, the person. Yep, the person, Vin Diesel. Oh, sounds just like him. He's he a does. sweetie. Nope, nobody, nobody loses a point. Isn't that nice? So nice. It's just point. like Ben. It's going to be so great. All right, Nathan. Yes. I absolutely believe in God, and I absolutely hate the fucker. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm going to guess that that is a character. That is a character. That's, that's, <laughs> yes, that's, I, do, <laughs> I do not believe that uh, Vin that, Diesel that hates Vin God. Vin Diesel hates God. That's a probably a good guess. Uh, that is indeed Riddick from uh, Pitch Black. It sounds Black. like Riddick. He's a bit of a badass, he, that Riddick. He is. He is. Keith. Yes. At the end of the day, family is what it's all about. That's what we do it for. I think that it sounds like it could be the real guy, but I think you just made that one up. Yep, you made it up. Ooh, wow. 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 That's impressive. Nice. I thought that was wow. a pretty solid invitation. From, from yeah, that's yeah. yeah. what I seemed like something at the end of one of his movies. 
Yeah, could have been any any of the three. That was the idea. Uh, okay, Rachel, to you. You've got to simplify your life. Money shouldn't add anything, but afford you the luxury of taking things away. Hmm. I'm going to say that you made that up. <laughs> Shit, I did make it up. <laughs> Damn it. Impressive. Wow. This is uh this is embarrassing. They're getting everything right. Rachel again. Uh is that is is that heart from the heart, that particular piece of wisdom? Is yeah. that uh Scott, do you want to talk about it? I thought it was pretty good, right? Yeah. I think Vin Diesel, if you were to ask him, would agree with me. All right. Nathan, this is to you. Yes. I've made my share of mistakes and come out a better man. Everyone deserves a second chance. I'm guessing that's a character? No, it's made up. No. Oh, finally, someone gets something wrong, for God's sakes. <laughs> All right, Keith, this is to you. Yes. I have dangerous bones in my body. I'm going to say character? No. The real Vin Diesel said that he has dangerous bones in his body. That he might want to see a doctor about that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's right. That femur has been giving him a lot of Uh, trouble. So Rachel's in the lead, right? It's 3-2-2. Oh boy, yeah. this is uh, oh this God. is the final round as well. So uh, oh Rachel can put you put you suckers away. All right. All right, Rachel. It's getting so real. I know it is. With age, you get to a place where you don't want to knock people out. You just want to give people a hug. I'm gonna go real. Real. Oh. Yeah, Rachel. She's I, a hugger. I really understand him. You do. <laughs> You're really <laughs> connected with him. Uh, uh, Nathan, this is this is all just this is all just for consolation here. All right. Um, stro- and inspiration. Consolation and inspiration. and inspiration. Strong survival instinct. I admire that in a woman. Uh, I'm guessing character. Character, pitch black. Uh, so Keith. You say that to Rada Mitchell? The very quotable Very pitch quotable black. pitch black. Yeah. Uh, all right, Keith. Click it or ticket, bro. Character? No, I made it up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> I thought. <laughs> all right. So, uh, Rachel. <laughs> Gets all four right, so she Yay. wins, and Nathan in second, right. and Keith, a rare third-place finish. Uh, oh, thanks, wow. guys. Uh, uh, I'm going to come up with some sort of a car metaphor here. Nope, I don't have one. All right, that's enough. See you later. <laughs> and now we've reached 30 seconds to sell. We're in person A. Tasha Robinson. And person B. Why do I have to be person B? Because <laughs> that's the way I've ever written All right, written Jeff, Feel free to be person A. <laughs> uh, I have 30 seconds to convince me to buy the recommendation, whether it's for a film, a soundtrack, an idea, whatever. Uh, let's start with person A, Tasha. You've got 30 seconds. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Three, two, one. Go. I'm suggesting listeners get ahead of the movie curve and read a book that's about to be a movie. Fans of young adult writers like John Green and Jay Asher or movies like The Fault in Our Stars will probably enjoy Jasmine Wargo's My Heart and Other Black Holes, a novel about a suicidal teenage girl who finds a possible suicide partner online, then finds that having somebody to talk to about her issues lessens them. The film rights for the books were just picked up and we reported on that, but when we read up the news, Dissolver seemed to take the subject matter amiss, assuming the book was twee or flippant or maudlin about suicide. It's none of the above. Try it yourself. And you'll see why it's becoming a movie. Oh, just a little bit over there, Tasha. I would make a little buzzing sound if I could, but I'm not going to do that. Um, but uh, quite an interesting recommendation. Um, Genevieve, let's go to you. Ready? Three, two, one, go. 
A few weeks back, we ran a piece by Matt Barone called Horror Movie Music is Coming Back from the Dead, where he highlighted the soundtracks for It Follows and Starry Eyes as doing something new and interesting with the musical genre. I'm not a horror movie lover and still haven't worked up the courage to see It Follows, but I have been listening to the soundtrack a lot because it's great work music, especially if you're like me and can't work to music with words. It's moody and synthy, but also more melodic than you'd expect from horror movie music, and just propulsive and surprising enough to keep you on your toes and engage. It's not something I listen to all the time because the dread would probably overcome me, but in the right situation, it's a great soundtrack to life, as well as a movie that I haven't seen yet. There you go. Under 30 seconds. Well, uh, that was pretty exciting. Uh, 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 I like both the recommendations. I think I'm going to give Genevieve the edge. She's a little bit under under 30 seconds. She was moving faster because that thing was following her the whole time. It was. It's standing it in the was corner right her. now waiting on and her. I, and I, I, you notice you know, I've been working a lot faster the past these past couple weeks. In a big, in a, you know, in any kind of 80s uh, horror you know, music uh, homage is gonna kind of play well with it's, the judge. It's not really that '80s homagey though. Like the, that was kind oh. of the. Oh, Tasha! Uh, I mean, it is. It is. So okay. I mean, it's basically John Carpenter. Yeah. Okay. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Genevieve and Tasha, thank you very much. Thank you, Genevieve. You may have won, but at least I'm gonna live out the week. <laughs> that does it for episode 33 of the Dissolve Podcast. Please join us in two weeks for more opinions, insight, and general tomfoolery. In the meantime, you can enjoy The Dissolve in Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and website form. If you have any questions or thoughts, email us at feedback at thedissolve.com. Please also uh, rate and uh, review us on iTunes. That would be very helpful. Uh, the Dissolve podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky with assistance from Colin the Animal Griffith. And Roger Moore, uh, you may want to keep your 87-year-old nuts away from Chicago.